Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 32 of The Essential X-Lapsed, which is a uh, kind of a surprising episode of The Essential X-Lapsed because I was I was almost 100% confident that we'd be back into uh, the original recipe X-Lapsed at this point in the month. Uh, only my DCBS package has yet to arrive. It's been just sitting in various cities and towns across these United States for the better part of two weeks now. Seems like every day I check on the status of it, it uh, the delivery either goes back a day or it just goes to pending. So uh, right now, I believe it's been sitting in Phoenix for about four days, and it's been pending for, well, about six days. So we're, uh, we're still sitting in wait here, which I guess that's good news and it's bad news at the same time. Uh, for folks who want to get right back into the current year stuff, uh, well, sorry, we got more Silver Age and... Uh, for folks out there who don't care for the current day stuff, uh, hey, you're welcome. We got some Silver Age stuff to cover. So let's get into today's book here where it's weird. We're officially 10 episodes ahead of the issue number. I, I didn't think it was going to go that way. I, you know, when I started this little uh, essential project, I never really considered the whole off the beaten path aspect of it. And I didn't think we'd be doing that. You know, I thought this was just going to be. X-Men 1 through 66, then Giant Size, then 94 on. That's what I figured it was going to be, but uh, no, indeed it's not. We have a lot of guest appearances we've covered, and uh, so far we've covered 10. So it's episode 32, issue 22. So let's do the thing here. Uh, this is X-Men number 22, July 1966, cover date. The story is called Divided, We Fall. Story by Roy Thomas, pencils Werner Roth as Jay Gavin. Inks, Dick Ayers, letters Artie Simek. Colosso, and maybe Colors by Irving Forbush Robotics Incorporated. Editor Emeritus, Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now we open where we open more often than not in these books, uh, in the Fantastic Danger Room, where the X-Men are being put to the test against Professor X's most dread creation yet, Colosso. And I wonder if Colossus ever wound up fighting Colosso. Probably not. Um, now this thing is huge. And our heroes are not too keen on having to fight it. Kid Cool even appeals to the professor asking if they can take a written test instead, uh, citing that they're still kind of beat up from their bouts with the Sentinels and Lucifer's big green machines. Now my question is, why are they still being tested? They graduated like 15 issues ago. I don't know. Anyway, let's get on with it. Now Colosso presents itself, and yeah, it's a gigantic clunky robot with a glowing orb for an eye or a head, I guess, and hypnotic lights flashing from every one of its joints and orifices. Professor X gives the kids five minutes to take the big bot down. Now Angel makes the first approach and is summarily blasted by the glowing orb. Now Warren turns out to be paralyzed briefly as he plummets to the floor. Luckily, Gene is able to TK him down softly. Iceman then goes to his other trick that he's got. Uh, as we know, Bobby's kind of a two-trick pony at this point. He either encases the baddie in a block of ice that they bust out of in the very next panel, or he ices up the ground in hopes that they'll slip and fall. This is the latter. But it's futile. You see, Colosso has been specially made to counteract all of the X-Men's tricks, and so it emits a cloud of steam from its booties, melting the ice away. Cyclops then goes to unload an optic blast, which ricochets off Colosso's chest and nearly fries poor Hank where he stands. Speaking of Hank, he then leaps crotch first at the robot, kind of like a uh, Liefeld drawing, you know, like where they're like jumping with like their crotch just way, way out there. It kind of looks like that, but Colosso ducks. Now, you see the problem here? You see the problem we're getting at here? 
The story is called Divided We Fall, yes? And here, we have the X-Men not working in tandem. So I think there's a lesson to be learned here, my friends. Uh, and like they said on Sesame Street, cooperation makes it happen. So they're going to have to work together to take this bugger down. Now, Scott takes point and has the team disperse in different directions to confuse the bot. But Colosso winds up grabbing him and Jean. Thankfully, Cyclops notices that Colosso's glowing orb glows a little bit brighter when it went to nab them, and so he deduces that this must be something that they can exploit. And I mean, duh, right? But in fairness to Scott, this was decades before video games where you'd always aim for the head of the level boss. You know, it's like, where do you aim? If you're fighting Dracula in Castlevania, you're not hitting its stomach. You know, you're jumping up and you're, you're whacking him in the face. So, Scott has Gene yank off Professor X's leg blanket, and it's worth noting he immediately covers his crotch with the big remote control box that he used to activate Colosso. So, I mean, I, I don't want to be crude or nothing, but, uh, yeah, it looks a little bit suspect. Anyway... Gene then TKs the blanket over Colosso's orb head, which causes the big bot to release them both. Angel catches Scott before he goes splat, and Gene TKs herself to safety. Hank then hops up and ties the blanket tightly around Colosso's orb head. Uh, Bobby then encases the whole thing in ice. And then they do the hit em high, hit em low sort of thing, where all the X-Men except Cyclops attack the chest area of Colosso, while Slim blasts at the back of its feet. Bada-bing, bada-boom. The X-Men, in working together, are victorious. Now, the strange teens celebrate their victory, and then, for the third time in, like, the past six issues, Professor X treats them with a vacation. I'm not kidding. It's like every time they finish something, he's like, I'm sending you on vacation. And they all go, yay, and, you know. Though, in fairness, the last couple of times the, the vacays got cut short, I wonder if the third time will be the charm. Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> now, uh, Beast and Iceman, they immediately know where they're gonna go. They're gonna go to Greenwich Village, of course. Warren then asks Jean if she wants to have dinner before her train leaves to visit her sister in Albany, and I think this might be the first mention of Jean's sister, Sarah Gray. Now, Sarah Gray, for those who might not know, it was who Chris Claremont wanted to use in X-Factor instead of bringing Jean Gray back to life in the uh, mid-80s. And uh, Jean, she's down with this dinner here, but only if Scott can come along as well. Now, Warren begrudgingly agrees, and shockingly, so does Scott. Usually he's like, no, my cursed eyes, I can't do this. But this time, he's, uh, he's cool with it. Though he does make sure to think about his optic curse and how uh, his love for Jean is one that can never be. As the X-Men leave the mansion, we stick around with Charles for a bit, who is suddenly, like, hypersensitive about his handicap. He laments the fact that the kids can, you know, all feel the sunshine and the wind on their faces. Which, I mean, Xavier could go outside, yes? Uh, anyway, he's, he's bummed out, that's all I'm saying. From here, we shift scenes to join Count Nefaria, who Stan reminds us hasn't been seen since Tales of Suspense number 68, which was uh, August 1965 cover date, so we're talking less than a year here, so he's not, like, uh, you know, really being pulled out of the mothballs. Now, old CF is trying to figure out a way to get his mojo back after his defeat at the hands of Captain America. And after looking at a copy of the Not Daily Bugle, he sees an article about the X-Men, which asks the question whether they're heroes or villains. And so, he is struck by inspiration. He will enlist the X-Men as allies, whether they want to be or not. From here, we head to uh, what Stan calls a weird and wacky section of New York City, Greenwich Village. Now here, Hank and Bobby are meeting their dates, Zelda and Vera. Now Zelda shows up right away. Hank then thinks he sees Vera, but it turns out to be just a fellow named Waldo with a Beatles mop-top haircut. 
Unfortunately for Hank, Vera sees him in the midst of this boner and acts like a real jerk about it. Uh, she has literally zero sense of humor. And I think if this were a manga, we'd refer to Vera as a sundere? Is that how you say that word? I don't know. Anyway, the foursome head to the theater to watch either Goldfinger or Thunderball. Vera asks Hank what he does at his private school. And instead of telling her that he graduated like a year and a half ago, he just says he usually hangs around by his feet. And as you might imagine, this annoys Vera because she thinks he's being silly. Next, we're off to the awkward dinage a trois with Warren, Jean, and Scott. Well, the tail end of their dinner, anyway. Scott's thanking Warren for treating him and bids his pals farewell for the next two weeks. We follow Jean and Warren to his hoopty, where uh, she thinks to herself how much she loves Scott. And she figures, you know, Warren's no slouch, but he's not Scott. From here, we bounce over to Scott, who's walking next to Central Park. And suddenly, he sees Marvel Girl flying overhead. He goes to give chase, but she disappears. He assumes that maybe he's just got Jean on the brain. Well, he wishes. Then, over to the real deal Jean, who's been dropped off at Grand Central Station. Now she walks past some dorks with a radio, where it's being reported that a flying X-Man was spotted flying over Central Park. And in other news, absolutely nothing, apparently. Jean knows out of the five of them, only she and Warren can fly, and so she figures that maybe she should check into this a little bit closer. Next we know, she's getting out of a cab at Central Park and changing into her work togs. Now as she walks through the foliage, the trees reach out and grab her. She runs right into the dread Plant Man and his goons. Now they spray her with chloroform, and before long, she's out cold. Now, this is Plant Man's third appearance, and I figure words of warning here for the next several episodes of this show. It's like we're heading down a corridor of the crappiest villains <laughs> that we're ever going to meet here. It's going to be a cavalcade of crap. Now, Plant Man, like I said, this is his third appearance. He first appeared in Strange Tales number 113, where he battled the Human Torch. Next, he appeared in Strange Tales number 121, where he battled the Human Torch. Now let's bounce back over to Scott here. He's now in costume. He's still in Central Park, and he just heard Marvel Girl cry out. But he's suddenly distracted by seeing Angel flying overhead. Scott calls out to Warren, but it's as though he's being ignored. Now speaking of Warren, he's actually still in his car. And as he drives, the radio plays, and he hears the news report of a flying X-Man over Central Park. And so he drops his fancy jalopy in a 24-hour parking lot and takes to the skies to check into this. Once in the park, the angel runs afoul of the Scarecrow. Not that Scarecrow. Now, I gotta ask, I always ask this when we have Warren in action here, what is the one thing that Warren's been training his entire life to avoid? Like, every Danger Room session has Warren dodging one main obstacle. Nets, right? He always avoids nets, and then every time he's out in the field, he flies right into a net, and he does the very same thing right here. Scarecrow's goons and crows tie Angel down. And, and, like, shouldn't the crows be afraid of the Scarecrow? Isn't that kind of in the name? Oh, well. Now, this is the Scarecrow's second appearance. He first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 51, where he fought Iron Man. Next, we shift over to, I'm guessing, either Zelda or Vera's bachelorette pad. Um, are they roommates? I can't remember. Anyway, Zelda is in the kitchen, slaving away, preparing a meal of soda and chips. Bobby switches on the radio. Uh-oh, I wonder what's going to happen now. Third time this issue. Now, Hank suggests that they listen to a Beethoven concert, which really seems to get Vera hot and bothered. I, I guess as hot and bothered as a uh, mannequin can be, I guess. Now, we know that they're not going to be hearing any Ode to Joys today, though, right? We know what they're going to hear. 
It's a news report about the, all the wacky X-Men sightings in Central Park. And so, Hank feigns illness and excuses himself to check into it. Naturally, this takes off Vera, right as she was barely starting to feel like a human being. Now, Bobby gets both girls to himself here, so lucky duck indeed. So shortly, we rejoin Hank in his beastly togs as he arrives at Central Park. He winds up being confronted by... The Porcupine. You all familiar with the Porcupine? Now, this might just be the worst character design coming out of the Silver Age, and that does cover a lot of ground. He almost looks like an unfinished drawing. It's bizarre. Anyway, Hank does his best Super Mario jumping on a spiny here. Like, he just jumps on this prickly critter. Uh, He winds up bloodlessly piercing his precious tootsies on the porcupine's quills. From here, Hank is tied up and captured by some goons. Now, this is the porcupine's fourth appearance, and actually the second time we're seeing him here for the show. He first appeared in Tales to Astonish number 48, where he did battle with the Ant-Man and Wasp. Then in Tales to Astonish 53, where he fought Giant Man and the Wasp. Next, we saw him among the myriad of baddies during Fantastic Four Annual number 3. Now, let's rejoin Bobby, who's being referred to as Bobby Blake here, as he's uh, checking into he and Hank's hotel. Now, he's pretty surprised that uh, Hank hasn't beaten him here, and he heads up to their room to check out the TV news. Naturally, they're reporting that Iceman himself was spotted near the lake in Central Park. And so, our youngest X-Man ices up and heads that away. Now, uh, Stan Lee time later, exactly one minute later, he's there, and he sees himself ice sliding away. Now, he wonders if this might be some trickery from the Blob and or Eunice, but come on, none of them can ice up, right? Anyway, he lands by the lake, where he's attacked by the eel. Now, in this situation, Bobby uses plan A, and he just encases the baddie in ice, which naturally the eel breaks out of in the very next panel. Just then, Cyclops arrives and blasts the eel in the back. But then, the unicorn shows up and makes short work out of the both of them. Now, this is the eel's fifth appearance, and like the porcupine before, the second time we're actually seeing him here for the show. He first appeared in Strange Tales 112, where he fought the Human Torch. Then, Strange Tales 117, where he fought the Human Torch. (laughs) I mean, we only ever looked at one torch story for the show. I tell you what, that must have been a really repetitive strip, right? I I haven't heard very many good things about it, so I'm assuming it's uh, not all that fondly remembered. Uh, Next, he would appear in Daredevil number 6, where he would join the Fellowship of Fear, alongside Mr. Fear and the Ox, uh, only to get beat up by Daredevil. And then he would appear in Fantastic Four Annual number 3. Now, this is the Unicorn's third appearance. He first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 56, where he fought Iron Man, and then he was also at Reed and Sue's wedding. So, all five of the X-Men have been accounted for and captured. All that's left now is to deliver them to Count Nefaria and his international crime syndicate known as the Magia. Now, the geeks all report that their assigned captives are, you know, captured, and as requested, mostly unharmed. Though, Cyclops and Iceman were stunned by the Unicorn's dread horn. This actually ticks Nefaria off because he wanted them completely unharmed. This seems like a real picking of nits here, but I guess it does facilitate a bit of a schism between the Magia ranks, and it's pretty clear that the Unicorn and Nefaria are going to be butting heads here. Anyway, from here, we head to a dungeon where the X-Men are all bound. And I tell you, it must be refreshing for them not to be kept in a glass box. Usually that's where they're kept. Nefaria soon joins them, and he informs them of his plan. He offers them an alliance with the Magia. Naturally, they decline. 
Nefaria isn't too concerned, however. He figures that they'll change their tune after his next trick, where he will literally steal Washington, D.C., and then ransom it back to the United States for $100 million. And that is where we leave it. So I, I guess let's talk about it. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, Like, one word comes to mind immediately, and that's... Uh, well, actually, two words. I just can't decide which one takes precedence here. One of them is oof, and the other one is yikes. Um, we're heading into some pretty lean days here for the Essential X Labs. The, the stories we're going to get are going to be really fun to talk about for all the wrong reasons, I think. Um, and the book is going to basically turn into a baddie of the month sort of a situation, which, I mean, this is the Silver Age. It's hard to hold that against it, but there's definitely a bit of an afterthought vibe here for this next stretch of issues. And uh, like I said, it's going to be fun to talk about, but probably not for the right reasons. And I feel like it's only going to get sillier as we move forward here. Maybe maybe this is Roy trying to find his uh, his footing with this, uh, with this team here, uh, not really knowing the direction to go, not wanting to just go right back to an old X-Men villain, maybe trying to integrate them more into the Marvel Universe here. You know, we've talked a little bit about the fan-turned-pro phenomenon of the mid-60s here, where we started seeing the first comic book fans become professionals. And it might stand to reason that... Uh, Someone like Roy Thomas might want to incorporate the X-Men more heavily into the shared Marvel Universe by bringing an Iron Man villain in or a Human Torch villain in. Or maybe it's just a matter of uh, bringing some disparate villains together and making bad guy teams, right? Of course, these are all shots in the dark from me. I, I don't know what the thought process was behind this. Uh, it just kind of feels like we're in something of a holding pattern as the X-Men book tries to find its post-Stanley identity, maybe? I don't know. That's just the feeling I got, and I, I really don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about, you know, the first half of the Nefaria story, other than Roy really stuck to the theme here. You know, the title of this issue, as I mentioned earlier, was, you know, Divided We Fall. And we open with the Colosso thing, where we see the X-Men strike at him individually, and they're unable to really do anything about it. So it's only when they're together, working in tandem, is when they're at their most I guess, capable, right? We do see the uh, Magia geeks come, and they take them all individually, except for, you know, Scott and Iceman. But uh, it's, you know, it plays up that divided-we-fall sort of mentality, which I guess that's kind of cool as a theme that extends to the entire story. Now, if I were more naive, I would assume that this is going to pay off beautifully next issue, but I'm like 80, 90, 95% convinced that it'll end the same way that all X-Men stories end, with... The X-Men coming up just short, and then Professor X sliding in to uh, save the day. So I guess we'll see when we get there. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Hopefully there's a little bit more to say uh, after we finish up the second half. But uh, with that said, let's visit with the X-Men in the letters page here. And we've got a handful of uh, second writers in here. Uh, you know me, I, I like to spend my time very efficiently. And so, I mean... This is this is so stupid. It's almost embarrassing that I did this, but uh, I've been putting all of our letter hacks into an Excel spreadsheet. Okay, so I can see if uh, people are writing in more than once, more than twice. You know, I I'm trying to see who's the most prolific letter hack in our letters pages here. Which, I, I mean, I don't know why that tickles me the way it does. It's it's stupid. It really shouldn't, but. Uh, Whatever the case, I spent like an hour doing it the other day, and I'll continue doing it as we move forward here, just to see if, uh, 
I don't know if we see any pattern. I don't, I don't, it's not important. It's stupid. But uh, let's get into it here. We got Walter in Pennsylvania, and this is his second letter. Now, he was flabbergasted by X-Men number 19. He found it to be completely perfect. Now, X-Men 19 was the Mimic issue, remember. He considers the Mimic to be the X, the best X-Men villain, and while he certainly had the potential to be, he is disappointed that Stan would create such an awesome baddie only to take him completely off the board after one appearance. So I guess the issue wasn't completely perfect then. Uh, Walter is a fan of Magneto, but he assumes that this is a minority opinion, and he hopes that they bring him back soon. And I tell you, it's nice to see that the unpopular opinion phenomenon was around even, you know, 60 years ago. It's funny, like, you'll see on social media or online somewhere, it'll be like, you know, unpopular opinion time. I really like the character Dazzler. And then, like, 500 people writing be like, yeah, me too, me too. It's like, it's, there, are, there really aren't very many unpopular opinions anymore. Especially in a, in a time where everybody has to feel like they are the odd one out or the, the one who can see things no one else can. But uh, anyway, Stan says that the Mimic and Magneto might just come back when we least expect them to. Which is to say they both will. Next up, Walter in California, and this is his second letter as well. He says that X-Men number 18 was the best adventure in the X-Men's extracurricular activities. Whatever the hell that means. Uh, he loved the exciting portrayal of Iceman, which evidently made Walter's heart pound and his blood boil. Okay. He says Iceman really came into his own during this story. And Stan, <laughs> he doesn't even take the compliment here. He just makes fun of Walter for his run-on sentences. Great. Um, now, Dean in New York, this is his second letter as well. Now, Dean, hmm, he's going to philosophize here. He's going to break down Professor X's powers. He's going to be really, really scientific here. And boy, okay. Um, now, he uses the overarching term thought wave energy to explain Professor X's powers, but he breaks it down even further to contextualize it. Now, the first power is a, quote, thought bolt which Charles uses on minds. Then we've got mental energy, which is sort of like telekinesis, but not really, though it can affect a sentinel. Third is mental analysis, which is what Brand Ech refers to as x-ray vision. Mental analysis and x-ray vision, is that... Okay, now finally is astral image, in which, you know, Professor X can leave his body. Now, Dean claims that Chuck can still use his three other thought wave energy powers while in astral form, but they're not as powerful. Now, Stan, um, he thanks Dean for explaining his own character to him, which uh, Stan's a little saucy today, isn't he? <laughs> He's having a little bit of a bad day. Uh, next up, Don in Texas, and this is his first letter. He thought X-Men number 19 was the best issue yet. He credits Jay Gavin as being the first artist to make Marvel Girl look like a girl. Hmm. He calls out Stan for suggesting that the battle with the Sentinels took a few months, citing that it could only be a couple of days at most. I, I don't remember Stan saying that they were fighting the Sentinels for months. Then again, I don't remember him not saying it either. So, uh, so if there's anyone out there with a better memory than mine, um, let me know, and uh, maybe a uh, fake-ass no prize might be headed your way. Now, uh, back to Don's letter here. He wants more Gene and Scott romance. He also wants an X-Men annual. He wants all new content in this annual. No reprint. No reprints at all. He says, save that stuff for Marvel's Collector's Item Classics, which, of course, is on sale at your local newsstand, so maybe pick up a copy or four, right? Uh, he wants to know more about each of the X-Men's pasts 
and he wants to see a picture of Stan's Pulitzer Prize. Now, Stan suggests he's got loads of Pulitzers, so he doesn't even know which one to take a picture of. And he also apologizes for not being able to fit in an X-Men annual for 1966. He does tell Don to keep an eye out for the upcoming Marvel Superheroes mag, and uh, Marvel Superheroes is what Fantasy Masterpieces becomes with issue number 12, and it goes on to run new material until issue number 20, and then from issue 21 to 105, it's back to reprints. Next, we got a missive from A. George in Florida. He loved X-Men number 19, considers Mimic to be the best villain yet. He suggests that the introduction of this character should be enough to get Brand Ech to give up completely. He loves all of Marvel's output, and he gets a few more digs in at Brand Ech along the way. Stan doesn't take the bait. I guess he's still kind of reeling from being called out for bullying last time out, so he, uh, he just thanks A. George for his uh, kind words. Next up, Dexter in Mississippi. This is his second letter. He liked issue number 19, but says it could have been better. He did like Stan plugging his Monsters Unlimited in the splash page. If you remember, Marvel Girl was reading it. He does call Stan out on his pacing. You know, he says that uh, felt like the first 19 pages made it feel as though this was going to be a continuing story, but then everything was rushed to wrap it up in the final two pages. And I do wonder if this had anything to do with it being Stan's final issue as writer. Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, Dexter thinks it was silly for the Mimic to know what it felt like to sprout wings, which is a decent point, though... I mean, there are probably a dozen less realistic things in that very story. Dex wonders if Stan will ever run out of bullpen bulletins. And I can say with certainty that he won't. I've got us about shoulder-deep in bullpen bulletins from here till the turn of the century, and we will cover them all. Well, so long as this show is a thing, anyway. Uh, Stan says that uh, maybe he'll bundle all the bullpens together and sell them for a quarter, calling it Marvel's Collector's Item Bulletins, which I would probably buy. He then challenges the readers to solve the quandary of what it feels like to sprout wings. Um, I smell a no-prize opportunity, real and fake-ass. If anybody out there has any insight on how it would feel to sprout wings, let me know. Let me know, and we will, uh, we will discuss it. Next up, Christine in Illinois, and uh, well, she's got questions. She wonders why the X-Men are still at Xavier's after graduating. Great question. Wonders why the X-Men keep getting sent on vacation only to have those vacations interrupted. She'd like to see the X-Men's parents, wants to see Jean used more, and liked it when the boys went gaga over her in the earlier issues. Wonders if the X-Men have any siblings, and wants to see the X-Men's homes. Now, Stan ignores the questions, and instead comments on how much Christine wrote. I tell you, we got some spicy Stan here today. Um, and now we know, with the power of 60 years of hindsight, that a lot of these questions will eventually be answered, and... Uh, well, I just wonder if Christine was still reading when they were. I wonder if this uh, reply from Saucy Stan was enough to get her to say, screw this, and maybe go over to Brand Ech. Next up, Jim in Oregon. Or Oregon. I, I never know how to say that. I know I... Either way, it, it ticked somebody off. Anyway, Jim loved issue number 19, says the Mimic is the best villain since Magneto. He'd like to subscribe to X-Men, but, but he's waiting for the prices to go down. <laughs> And he wonders why comics are so expensive at <laughs> 12 cents per. Um, Stan says he wishes he could lower the prices, but all that stuff is handled by another department at Mighty Marvel. And he suggests that there might just be a spy from Brand Ech in that department keeping the prices up. Now, Jim, if you're out there, if you're listening, if you're still walking this planet, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on $5 comics. <laughs> really, really would. Um, next up, Francisco in El Salvador. 
loved X-Men number 18, thinks it's great that the Marvel heroes have human problems and are relatable. He mentions some of the Marvel books that appear in El Salvador. He's, he cites uh, El Hombre Araña, Los Cuatros Fantásticos, and Sargento Furia. But he says these Spanish versions are inferior to the English versions. Uh, he's happy that he can uh, understand English, uh, but laments the fact that many of his friends cannot. Stan responds uh, with uh, a bit of Spanish, and he says, You're mucho welcome, amigo. Come on, Stan. Come on. Um, okay, well, that does it for the letters here. Uh, let's head into the bullpen bulletins. And uh, this bullpen bulletins page is known as Items of Lasting Insignificance from the Four Corners of Marveldom. And we've got some bulletins here. First one, Marvel was visited by Peter Asher from the famous British singing team Peter and Gordon. To which I said, the who now? <laughs> um, Stan loves his Red Beatles mop top. And we find out that Peter is opening a bookstore in London and wants to sell Marvel mags there. I did a little bit of research. I couldn't find anything on this bookstore, but I spent about 15 minutes reading about Peter Asher. Uh, This dude is a pretty big deal, actually, with a storied career that continues even till today. I mean, he was like the bigwig of Sony Music for a bit. It's a a pretty storied career, for sure. Um, And he was also pals with the Beatles. And uh, Stan alleges that Pete told him that the Beatles all love Marvel Comics, too. So um, maybe a grain of salt or two there? I don't know. Bulletin. Real name reveal. Now, inker Frankie Ray is actually Frank Giacoa, formerly of the newspaper strip Billy Yank and Johnny Reb, which I never heard of, but I can kind of assume what it was about from the title. And it was actually called Johnny Reb and Billy Yank, uh, sometimes just Johnny Reb. And yeah, it's a Civil War thing. Not that Civil War, you know, the actual, you know, war between the states. Uh, Stan's happy that they can finally use his real name in the credits, He says Frank, along with John Romita, is helping to lift Daredevil to new heights. And he also makes sure to plug Romita's work on the post-Ditko Amazing Spider-Man with inks by Mickey Demio. You see, things are only going to get better with the Onion Man out of the office. And for folks who don't get that reference, um, you probably haven't listened to more Tory Mondays yet. That was an amazingly fun show, and it's available in the archives for you right now. Bulletin. It's summer annual time, so let's go through what we got. In June, Millie the Model and Sergeant Fury annuals come out. July, Thor and the Marvel Superheroes annuals. August, Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man annuals. Now, Stan says he'll make a formal announcement of what the Marvel Superhero mag is next month. And, well, I kind of already spoiled that announcement, but we'll act surprised for old Stan anyway. Bulletin. Marvel is taking over the world, with articles appearing in hundreds of newspapers, and Stan lists several here. The New York Herald Tribune, Chicago Daily News, the Akron Beacon Journal, the Topeka State Journal, Cleveland Press, the Altoona Mirror, yes, the vaunted Altoona Mirror, Milwaukee Journal, the Beckley Post Herald and Register, Radio Television Daily, and the New York Post. Stan thanks them all. Also, Stan was interviewed by Tom Dunn of CBS News and Mike Wallace of CBS Radio, and he thanks them for their kindness as well. Bulletin. Stan reminds us that he was taken to task for rap and brand ech on the knuckles for sucking last issue. And he doubles down, saying brand ech is swiping everything from Marvel but the copyrights. Now, Roy Thomas chimes in on this by giving Stan a poem written by William Butler Yeats, and it goes a little something like this. To a poet... Who would have me praise certain bad poets, imitators of his and mine? You say, as I have often given tongue in praise of what another said or sung. Twere politic to do the like by these, but was there ever a dog that praised his fleas? 
<sighs> Sick burn, right? Okay. Bulletin. Stan replugs the Marvel mini books that appear in vending machines around the country, and he says that they are a gas. And having seen them, I agree. You can find them online. They're very, very interesting. Bulletin. Stan shares a missive from a Jan in Maryland who's taking Marvel as a whole to task for their art turning to crap. Now, Jan is upset that Jack Kirby is only drawing two books anymore and says nobody else in the Marvel bullpen is up to that standard. Now, Stan replies by mocking Jan's math skills as Jack is currently drawing three books, not two, and those three books are Fantastic Four, Thor, and Captain America. And he's also providing layouts for two more on top of that, Hulk and the Nick Fury agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. strips. And Jack also draws most of Marvel's covers. Stan suggests that Jan's is a minority opinion, as most of the letters he's received are pleased with the roster of pencilers that Marvel currently employs. That wraps up the bullpen, but we still have the mighty Marvel checklist here. We got Fantastic Four number 53, which features the origin of the Black Panther. In Amazing Spider-Man number 39, the Green Goblin discovers Spidey's identity, and the readers find out his. Avengers number 30, are the new Avengers over already? Daredevil number 18, enter the Gladiator. Probably not that gladiator. Thor 130 features Thor in Netherworld battling Pluto's legions. Strange Tales number 147, Them attacks S.H.I.E.L.D.'s HQ, and I figure this is probably the fixer's Them that we covered during the Mighty Mentalo trilogy. Also, we get the post-Ditko start for the Doctor of Strange, which I'm guessing, you know, onwards and upwards, of course. Suspense 80, Iron Man vs. Namor, and Captain America vs. Red Skull. Astonish number 82, Namor vs. Iron Man. Okay. And Hulk vs. Boomerang. I wonder if that's a continuing story between Suspense and Astonish. I I suppose I could have checked, (laughs) but uh, I suppose a better host would have. Um, Sorry about that. Sergeant Fury number 32 features a Howler turned traitor. Hmm. Marvel Tales number 3 features Spider-Man, Ant-Man, and Human Torch reprints. Uh, Fantasy Masterpieces number 3 continues the Golden Age Captain America. And Marvel Collector's Item Classics number 4 features reprints of Fantastic Four, Hulk, Iron Man, and Doctor Strange. Finally, for the Merry Marvel Marching Society, we've got 26 new members, and, well, nobody really stands out. I can tell you that next time, there will be a name that we'll recognize in the Merry Marvel Marching Society uh, roster of new members. So, look forward to that, but that is where we're going to leave it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason, please feel free to do so. You could find me at Ace Comics on Twitter. You could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You could join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And, of course, for the complete archives, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And, of course, that's available on any podcast app. And, of course, while you're there, if you like what you hear or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show. If you listen to any other eccentric uh, podcast, maybe let them know that uh, this little show is a thing that exists. It was recently brought to my attention that I should probably try to be more of a part of the uh, community. Um, I wasn't going to share this on the air, but I received a comment on Chris's on Infinite Earths from... I can't remember if it was anonymous or unknown. Sometimes when you don't put your name in a comment, it comes up as either one. So it might be someone I know, it might be someone I don't, but in any event... uh, They sent me a very thoughtful message about uh, the importance of being part of the community. And I tell you what, uh, I'm not good at that. 
I'm not good at, uh, you know, making friends. I'm not good at reaching out. I, I always figure that I'm, for lack of a better term, an inconvenience to most people. <laughs> and uh, that they would uh, prefer that I'm not around. Of course, maybe maybe this is in my mind. Maybe, maybe it's not. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, if anyone out there feels like I've been avoiding the community or separating myself from it, I assure you that uh, that's not the case. I'm just really awkward and not good at that sort of thing. And uh, and if there's anyone out there who's more personable than me, which is to say pretty much anyone out there uh, who wants to help me uh, make some inroads here, I would uh, certainly appreciate it. Anyway, with that bit of embarrassment out of the way, I would like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.